Hello and welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and with Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. How are you? Very good, very good. And super excited that we have uh, a new guest this evening, uh, Frances Akinde, or known as Frankie to her friends, she tells me. So welcome, Frankie. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So thank you. No, it's really, it's really exciting to, to, uh, to get someone on who, who we sort of want to meet, really, because we, I, I think Emma and I both had this thing. We, 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 we saw your article that you wrote in, in Schools Week, and um, we're, we're always looking for people who are doing, <laughs> doing the real job, you know, and in, in the thick of it and, and, and trying to branch out and, and talk about um, special education. And you had this fantastic uh, headline for your, for your piece, which, which said, um, something about the, this year getting into good trouble became necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, just thought, yeah. I want to talk to Frankie about what good trouble is. Yeah. So, yeah. T- tell us a bit about yourself. Um, you know, tell, tell people about, about your context and, and kind of how you came to, to maybe come writing that. Okay. So, um, as you said, I'm Francis Akinde. I'm head teacher of Rivermead Special School, which is part of Rivermead Inclusive Trust in Medway. And I've been in education for 20 years. I count it by, you know, the age. My twins are 19. So I was pregnant with my twins when I did my teacher training. So that's how I remember how long I've been in education for. So, um, yeah, I started off as a mainstream art and design teacher. And then I was made head of department in my first year. And then ever since then, I've just got more and more into special education and needs, worked in alternative provision for seven years as a SENCO and assessment centre leader, then moved into local authority work as a specialist advisory teacher, back to mainstream for primary, and then eventually where I am now um, to secondary special. And I absolutely love it. I think um, I'm so passionate about SEN and I don't know why. I think it's just something inside that drives me to make sure that every child that I that I teach or is who, who are in my school get the best education they can. And I think that a lot of the time learners with autism, like in my school or with other difficulties, complex needs, sometimes they just get written off and people think, you know, they can't achieve what they, what they do. And we're very proud of the fact that we're one of the um, only special schools that do GCSEs and offer that full range um, for our learners in year 11 so the whole title around getting into um, good trouble was um, from John Lewis. And um, at the time he'd um, just passed away. So that was really on my mind. On my bookshelf, where have I put it? You know, I've got March here. <laughs> I was quite strategically. I've got, I saw some of your podcasts and everyone always picks up a book and says, yes, I'm reading that. So <laughs> that's about, <laughs> so I've got my pile ready so I can say, yes, I'm reading that and give you a good quote, even though I haven't maybe read the full details of every one of them. But, um, <laughs> I just, I saw the previous episodes. I'm like, I've got to do that and just show a book. So, um, yeah, so the title was around that because, I think, especially as a black educator, sometimes you feel like you have to put yourself above, you know, just to show people that you exist sometimes and you don't always get that recognition that you should. 
And I'm very passionate about a lot of things. And sometimes I feel like, oh, I've said that and I shouldn't have. But I'm trying to be more confident in saying, you know what, that's something I'm passionate about and I have to fight for that. So when it comes down to equality, uh, equity, more importantly, I've I've always had my children the whole time I've been in education. You know, I had my um, eldest son, who's 21 now, when I was doing my degree. And, um, you know, and then for some reason I thought it would be a good idea to have twins while I was doing my teacher training. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just always been like that, you know, and I think a lot of the time I've got five boys now. And a lot of the time people hear that and go, oh, my gosh, you've got five boys and you're a head teacher and you're doing this and you're doing that. And a lot of me that. There's a drive there to prove to people that you can do that, you know, and I've always had that support from everywhere that I work at to say she's got the potential. Let's push her to the top of where she can get to. And I'm very grateful for that. But I'm also mindful that education is quite a closed environment. Not everybody gets those opportunities. It seems to be that everybody knows each other. So sometimes an opportunity comes up and it's quite closed. So I'm really passionate and especially, you know, International Women's Day today um, about lifting people up and just trying to look at people's potential and, and pushing them to the top of their potential, really. So that title was just about that, just making sure that everybody gets their right to reach the top of their potential, whether that's a student or whether that's an adult. So, yeah. Well, that's, that's a great. I mean, it's a really it's a great, really great answer. And it, it's something which. I mean, you can tell that it's something you, you're passionate about. It's like, I mean, I mean Twitter's just a, a one way of, of platforming your thoughts, isn't it? But there you have it. It says, Frankie, hashtag, I broke the bias. Yeah. It's like, it's right in there. And I think that, I mean, that is that something you feel like um, you need to say to sort of platform the yourself to people? Or is it just because you're sort of saying, yeah, I feel proud of that, you know, and I broke the bias. Yeah. You know, um, I think the um, hashtag this year was break the bias. And it was really interesting because I was having like a Twitter debate. I try not to get into Twitter debates, but, um, you know, there's a lovely lady on there called Penny, um, who is from the Baymed Network. And they've been such a massive support um, to me over the years. And just in terms of networking and, and seeing people like me. Um, and we were kind of she was saying that, you know, we shouldn't be saying break the bias, we should be showing how we've helped people to break the bias, you know, and get to the top of where they need to be. And I kind of said, well, I'm proud to say that, you know, I've broken the bias because I'm somebody that people would might have a lot of bias against because I'm a mother, I've got a lot of kids and, you know, a head teacher being, you know, black and everything else. So it was something that I felt really proud to say, actually, I'm here, I've broken the bias, I'm getting to the top of where I want to be. And I'm very ambitious and I find it hard to stop really. So I just really wanted to show that to other people to say, sometimes it might seem like you're not getting the support you need or your circumstances are challenging, but there's always a way to to reach your potential, really. So, yeah. Well, Emma, I mean, you, we've had this discussion before. I mean, your whole thing of the flex and and then being an SLT person and through. So it must, that must resonate with you hugely. Oh, massively, absolutely massively. And, and I mean, from my own experience, when we set up the co-headship, everybody said, you can't do it. Yeah, it's not been done before. We were like, well, there's the gauntlet thrown down, if ever I Exactly, yeah. As soon as <laughs> someone uh, says that, you're like, I'm going to do it. Then, yeah, yeah, very much so. And 
And it's, it's so important that people see that there are different ways of doing things so that the broadest range of people with the widest range of lived experiences are, are in front of our children saying, that, you know, this is what you can be. This is what's possible. This is what's, this is, you don't have to be a certain person to do a certain thing. It's open to everybody. And I think it is so important to challenge the status quo and to challenge historical models about everything. Um, mm so many levels but what I really wanted to ask you about was your work with the Academy of Women's Leadership because obviously it's international yeah. women and I know who's behind the Academy of Women <laughs> and I love her <laughs> yeah 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 she's brilliant she's so good yeah so what was what's your involvement with the Academy and what's what's been the journey you've been on with them so basically, I think, you know, when you start off in any position and, you know, we're we're getting really good about talking about imposter syndrome and not using that anymore. And I've always found a course to help me feel more confident. So if someone talks to me about something, I was like, right, I'll find a course about that. So that will raise my confidence in it. And, you know, I found um, Diana's organisation when I became a head teacher and my organisation is really good at coaching um, but the coaching we had was quite external and I really wanted to find something that was external and with women that looked like me and had gone through the same experiences that I could share some of my challenges with in my first year of headship. So I was really fortunate that um, my CEO, Tina Lovey, she agreed to pay for that for me so I could have that external coaching. And it was just it made me feel so confident because it was a check in with people where they were saying, right. If you come across this difficulty, this is what you do, you know, and you've got a whole village, really, of people, champions, you know, that are saying to you, yeah, you can do this. And, you know, these are the experiences that we've had in sharing that knowledge, because for someone like me, I don't come from a background where I've got anybody in my family that work in education. So I haven't got that role model. You know, I remember, Tom, you were talking about your wife being in education. She nicks your books sometimes. I haven't got, I didn't have anybody that I could kind of turn to and say, what does this look like? You know, can you help me with that? And also in terms of, there seems to be this thing around Black leaders where if there's more than one black leader in an organization, there seems to be some sort of jealousy sometimes or people aren't always working together. And I find that a problem because we should be lifting each other up. But that's some of the experiences that I've had in the past. So it was really nice to find an organization of women that were just empowering each other and saying to each other, yes, you can do this. And yes, we'll support you with that. And I was really fortunate because as part of that offer, you get a coach as well. So, you know, they call them giants, which is just amazing, you know. And um, uh, John Amici, isn't it, that talks about his book is absolutely brilliant when he's talking about um, giants. And you do need those people that have come before you that can help you on your journey. So I chose um, ex-Paralympian Liz Wright as my personal coach. And then we had the group coaching session she was just absolutely brilliant she's moved to Australia now which is a shame so I might have, to have some virtual coaching sessions but she just really made me think about my um, background and myself and my identity and she's very much into positive psychology and um, things being values driven and we had such a good um, talk about our, our character values and what that means to us and she really helped me to think the big question that she asked me and I ask everybody is, 
how um, how does your inner and outer align? And that question took me about a year to answer because it is just about joining yourself together, you know, and making sure that the person that you present on the outside is truly how you feel in the inside. So it was just so nice to have such a diverse group of women that were just championing you. So, yeah, that's how I found it. And it has made me really grow in confidence. It's, 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 it's fantastic, isn't it? So it's great to hear that. I mean, from from my perspective, you see these things happening, and you know, I'm aware, you know you're aware of, of I'm aware of women ed and the fact that today is you know, International Women's Day is fantastic. But because I, I'm someone who sort of swims in the sea where things are sort of are set up for me, basically, I mean, that is the world I'm in, and that's just you know you you have to check your biases and your privileges and everything. It's, yeah. it's just really fantastic to hear that that's not just a sort of it goes beyond sort of tokens. It's 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 really sort of empowering, and it has a, a, a definite like real world impact. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you know, there's there's something someone's always taught me is that you know words without deeds are dead. And you know, after um, George Floyd and you know the whole Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, everybody was so uh, quick to put up banners and hashtags and talk about diversity and equality and say Black Lives Matter, we really believe in this. But then when it comes down to it, is it tokenistic or are they actually doing something, you know? And that's such an important question to ask any organisation. When it comes down to it, what are you doing for um, Black and Asian and ethnic minority people in your workplace and for women in your workplace, you know, to empower them, all these marginalised groups that don't have access to the table, you know, um, and like you said, Tom, in your position, it's thinking about how can you be an ally to people? How can you empower them and lift uh, you up, uh, lift them up and just give them that exposure to things that they may not experience? And that's the most important thing um, for me. I mean, my CEO, I never, ever thought about becoming a head teacher. And it was such a strange story because a TA I worked with at the time went on hot, uh, on um, holiday to Mexico and met my current CEO on the beach, <laughs> you know, and she was talking about her school and said, oh, yeah, we've got an advert out for a new um, head teacher. This was in Mexico, you know, we're in Kent. And um, she said, oh, I've got somebody that's in my school. I know she's looking for a new opportunity. She'd be great. And she just kind of rang me up and said, have you thought about headship? And I was like, no way. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. Not, not at all. And um, she said, you know what, let's have a conversation. We ended up, you know, sitting in Morrison's with my with my current CEO and my um, director of school improvement, just having a coffee and having a chat. And she said, this is something that I really think that you can do. And, um, you know, they they did it properly. They had like a whole organisation that was working for them with the recruitment and everything. And gosh, I remember seeing the advent in TS and thinking, right, you know, I've spoken to them. I've had that conversation. I can do this. But at the same time, I felt, again, like I said, I always do a a course. And there was a course um, on becoming a head teacher. And it was like a two-day course. um, And I just did it over the weekend. And it went through interview techniques. It went through all kinds of crazy exercises that they do, like the is it called the goldfish bowl and all that kind of stuff to really stress you out so it was just <laughs> yeah. it was oh, just like a horrible. practice yeah it was horrible it was a, but because we did it as a practice and I managed to find the course um 
I think it was like the weekend before my actual interview. So everything I did in the interview came up. And, you know, it really makes you think because not everybody has those opportunities to do things like that and practice and things like that. So, you know, I got to the interview. It was two days and it was like everything that we practiced. It was about data. And I and I was just like, oh, why have you got a coffee machine? Get rid of that. Why are we spending that money? Get rid of that. And that's what they liked about me, you know, because I was like, I'm not spending money on that. That's ridiculous. But um, and then, you know, I had to do the in-tray exercise and the observation and and things like that. And And the goldfish exercise was just crazy because. You know, in our trust, they put all the um, teachers, they gave them all these characters and they obviously didn't tell me and the other candidates. So one of them had to be blow the budget and the other one had to be scary and all this kind of stuff. And we had to go in with the scenario and then talk about it. And then they had to respond in characters. One of them said, I don't worry about the money, just spend it, you know. And I was like, what are you sure? (laughs) Uh, and there was something about assault and all this kind of stuff. It was crazy. That's and I survived. <laughs> Say that again, sorry. That's on an interview. I mean, that's, that, that is yeah. quite extraordinary to have those characters played out. Um, well, I mean, I told them never do that to anyone again. I said I was ready to walk out because I thought you were all crazy. So they've promised me they won't do that to anyone again. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. So do you think if, if your CEO hadn't reached out and sort of threw your TA, you, you wouldn't have applied? No. You needed that, come on, come yeah. on in, kind of... Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's such an important point because jobs aren't advertised necessarily in the places where everyone should get exposure to see them. So like things like the voice newspaper, which is, you know, uh, a black newspaper, you don't routinely see adverts in there, you know, and, you know, we're down in Kent. So you don't see adverts in London encouraging people to come down. And one of the things that my organisation always say to me is because because I'm there, people feel safe, you know, when people want to come into my school because they know that they've seen someone like me. If something happens, they can talk to me about that because that's the reality of being an ethnic minority in a in a very white area that sometimes you do need that support when things happen. And I've had people before who've said that, you know, they're not sure whether the area is right for them and things like that. And I've managed to talk to them and say, look, these are some of the things that I've gone through. So these are some of the ways that I can help you. And that's really important that you're open to have those conversations. So I, I think it's, what you say as well about that the importance of action and continuing to take action as well was in, in your schools week article when you talk about how you then became involved in the NHT's work mm-hmm. and that you challenged Mr Zahawi directly. Yeah. Yeah. Just explain that little part of the journey <laughs> as well. So um with some of the instances that have happened to me in Medway, I really wanted to kind of like have a network around me of head teachers that had gone through some um, experiences that I could talk to. And in the best will in the world, people around me that weren't from that demographic found it 
hard when I was explaining to them, I think this person's being funny with me. I can't tell what it is. This person's not respecting me or whatever. And having that conversation and getting to the bottom of, is it because of my race kind of thing? And um, I found um, the group, um, I contacted NHT in the summer and they put me in touch with the with the group um, Leaders for Race Equality. And I didn't know anything about them. I didn't even know they had a book out, you know, You Were Not Alone. Um, and it was just so lovely to find a network of people that had been through those experiences and who were all senior leaders that were talking about their difficulties as, you know, Black and Asian and ethnic minority leaders and talking to each other about that. And the group chat is just brilliant because you just can put on there, this has happened, they're like, oh, try doing this, try to, and it's not always about race or, you know, issues around discrimination, but it's just nice to be able to have that chat. So they put on there that, you know, they were doing their um, policy conference in London and that he was going to be there. And they said, does anyone want to ask him a question? And it's the same question I ask everyone, <laughs> you know, when, when, I, when I get the opportunity to meet them. So I, I was really fortunate with my trust. We um, got to meet Gavin Williamson and, um, you know, at the conference, I got to meet Amanda Spielman as well. So I, I just wanted to ask him about that representation because I know how hard it was for me. And that if somebody hadn't seen that potential in me, I would never have gone for an opportunity like that. And I found it very interesting because, you know, I asked him the question and his response was very rehearsed because you have to kind of, you know, let them know what you're going to ask a few days in advance. And, you know, it was funny because when we moved away from the camera, um, he said, I completely get what you're saying. You know, all these issues that we're seeing in schools where people aren't seeing people to look up to, it would make a massive difference if there was more diversity in leadership in schools. You know, you're talking about schools in London where sometimes you're up to 60, 90% of the school population um, is non-white, but then the leadership team is all white. And then, you know, the kids are talking about an issue and talking about things that they're passionate about and people just don't get it, you know, and, and they misconstrue them, think, you know, just think things that they shouldn't think really. And they're not open to a conversation about what that looks like. So I really was hopeful that after I'd spoken to me, it was really like, yeah, you know, we're going to do something about this. We're going to, you know, start something. I'm going to get in touch with academies and get them to think about their demographics and things and nothing is been silent really silent which is such a shame and there is one man on twitter called london heads and i have to say he is he contacts every single academy group in london and gets them to tell them tell him all the information about their demographics about their leadership team and he'll put it on twitter and he'll say you know, this trust, they've got no um, black or ethnic minority leaders, this trust, they haven't got any either. And it's kind of shaming them into doing something different. And there are some trusts where he'll say, you know, like Arc Learning Trust, and he'll say they've really tried, they've really make, made an effort, and he will praise them for that. But that's a really difficult conversation to have, isn't it? And I think people don't realise the value of having such a diverse leadership team, you know, sometimes. And I just don't get it because. It, it's such a positive, and I don't understand why people aren't more open I mean, to it. I, I think this is this is so interesting. I mean, I, and I feel like you know, there's a there's a whole, you know, where does it start kind of question. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because I, mean, I do go to schools. I do a lot of work in Haringey, and I do go to some 
sessions. And to be honest with you, I see more, um, especially representation of black teachers specifically in, in Harringay than, I get, than anywhere else I ever go. And you go to do a training day in a, in a, in a school and you think representation here is, is really, you know, strong. Mm. And then other areas of the whole country where you just think, literally every single person in the whole place is white and it's it all this sort of it's very variable but where does it start is it because not enough people are coming into teaching or is it once people are into they're not promoted and and they're not being given opportunities is it both or is it is one of those things stronger i think it's it's both i think it's about exposure isn't it and you know in a lot of organizations it's quite everybody kind of knows each other you know education is such quite a closed environment quite a closed profession and people seem to have connections everywhere so sometimes you know you might go for a job and you find out or oh, actually somebody from the school's already got it or their mates got it or something else and it's so disheartening for people but I think it starts from the bottom I was very fortunate in my education my parents couldn't afford to support me with my education but I was so determined to do it And you do get to a point where you think, you know what, should I just give up? Is it worth it? We're not getting enough parents into schools as volunteers, as role models, enough, you know, teaching assistants that we're supporting to get their degrees and 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 become teachers because a lot of people from my demographic can't afford that. You know, they're trying to support their family. They're not from a background where they've got parents or family that can help them. And then it's just building up that confidence as they go up and up to say, yeah, you can do this and we're going to support you with that. There isn't enough of that happening at all, in my opinion. And it does start from getting people in and exposing exposing them to the education system and also getting them to rethink their experiences of education. Because, I mean, I, I was brought up in you know North London um, in Finchley, but my parents lived in Halsden. And they were like, there's no way you're going to school in Halston. At the time, it was known as the gun capital of Europe. So they were like, you're not going to school in Halston. There was loads of us that just used to get the 260 from Halston, spend an hour on the bus and go down to Finchley because the schools were much better. But the the schools didn't appreciate that. You know, I remember going to college and them saying, well, they're bringing down our demographic, they're bringing down our results, you know, because you're getting these kids that are coming in from Harringay, you know, Islington and all those areas that didn't fit the area. And it it was so difficult to push yourself through that and just kind of make something um, uh, of yourself from that kind of background, because it was always people getting blamed for things, you know, that really they weren't involved in and it might have been oh you know the black girls were a bit louder or something like that so it was automatically your problem so you you end up fighting from the beginning and I was very very fortunate and I'm a great believer in assessments and I know a lot of people aren't but I think sometimes when you rely on teacher assessment there is a lot of bias there and I did very well in my year six assessments and I remember starting in secondary school went into the class with my best friend who was blonde and blue-eyed at the time we were both um thought we were in set one so I walked into the classroom and they looked at my timetable and looked at hers and said to me you're in the wrong class and I said well it says set one and they said no you're in the wrong class you're not in in set one and they looked at hers and she was in set three and mine said set one So they eventually had to say, "Okay, she's here because my assessments had shown that I was clever enough to do that. 
But from year seven, it was a fight to stay in set in set one. And eventually I was moved down to set three, set four, and then I wasn't allowed to do my higher paper in maths. And I had a friend um, who lived in Islington and her mum came into school and kicked up a fuss. She was just <laughs> like, you're discriminating against her. You need to put her in back in top sets so she can do her exam. Because at the time you could only get a D if you... If, if that had happened to you and if I didn't have her fighting for me my parents were like it's your fault you're being lazy you're not trying blah, blah, blah. and it wasn't true you know but I just didn't have the energy to kind of argue with them because that's what they were being told and it's just always been a fight just to say you know what I've earned it and I should be here and I, sh- I have the right to you know to progress to as high as I want to so I think it does start from there you know in primary yeah. school academically black children do well but that bias exists that as they go through the system they just don't they don't follow that trajectory that they should do you know so it's a lot it's a lot of stuff going on wow so so much to unpack isn't it there's so much to think about including the whole technical assessment aspect because that was that's been raging of course with all the the tags and cags over the last two years the the, the teacher assessment coming into the formal exam system yeah. So you, you returning to exams, and we, I want to talk to you about more about your your school in a minute. But I mean, so it's just yeah. this is just you know you've just got it in your it's it's deep in your whole experience, isn't it? You just yeah. can't separate yourself from that because that's what you've been through. Absolutely. There needs to be so much more vigilance by people in positions of authority. So who's making up their organisations as well? I know in the trust that I work in. We've set up an equality commission group with representation from across the trust, from all levels of responsibility within the organisation around the nine protected characteristics. And we meet regularly and we analyse everything from staffing structure to attitudes to uh, working patterns to what's in the curriculum to how we work with communities and families. And that multiple viewpoints feeding into driving the work of the trust, it's so straight. Forward, but it's so powerful because if you've got a particular one particular demographic leading a team and leading multiple communities, you know, it, you have to have that degree of vigilance and, and yeah. communication yeah. with the communities that you serve. I mean, and I, a colleague of mine, Halil, he set it up that I sit on the board um, on the advisory group and mine's um, maternity and parenting. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> But we, we why got, can't he have that one? <laughs> <laughs> He's the chair, he set it up. Um, but yeah, we've got that representation, but it's such a simple process. But it is so in terms of feedback, and it's completely changed the way that we work. And it's provided that safe space for people to air their views about this is how I perceive I'm being treated, or I, you know, this, this happened, let's talk about it. How can we make it better? And unless you've got those systems and that vigilance around that, yeah. things change either so absolutely it's important about that action bit I, I love what you said about that it's just what was it dead words wasn't it <laughs> words <laughs> without <laughs> deeds words without deeds that's it yeah, like, I, deeds. I digress I digress I feel like we we could you know just just talking about um you know diversity inclusion and and this whole um you know breaking the bias thing I, I think as though we could talk about just about that but I mean I we just I also want to talk to you about being the head of a special school and yeah. I don't know if one of one of my um 
one of the people I've met through Twitter and other things is Helen Ralston, who's the head at the Rise School uh, in Felton, which is another school for autism. And I've been to visit that school. So I sort of have in my head a sort of a sense of what it might be like. But it'd be interesting because what I, what I what took me by surprise was just how varied um, the needs of children are when they sit under the yeah. umbrella term autism. And then yeah. you do have GCSE groups and you've got all these sort of sensory rooms and yeah. just just so many like and people with these sort of like well, hugging jackets is sort of because yeah. they yeah. want they, for that feeling weighted blankets yeah this kind of things and yeah. it's yeah. like wow to be involved in that whole aspect of education must be yeah. quite challenging but kind of incredibly reward, rewarding what's what it's I mean, amazing giving people a flavor yeah it, it's such an amazing environment to be in because our children you know our young people you just think about all the biases that they've had against them and all those things that they've overcome and the fact that some things may seem like really small steps to other people but it's a massive step the fact that they haven't been to school we've we've got a learner who hasn't been to school for three or four years and we worked for over a year to get him back into school and make him feel comfortable and it's small steps like that if he was in a mainstream school it would have been his attendance is too low you know he's not coping so that's the end of it and we've had to fight and fight and fight and sometimes, you know, against advice to say, no, this is what we're doing with him and things like that. It's so rewarding to have that. But at the same time, there are so many challenges because local authorities, they haven't got the funding. They haven't got enough places for children that need it. Mainstream schools aren't equipped because they're not getting that support. And sometimes you're working in an area where special schools and mainstream schools are not working together. You know, um, Nason Sendgate, where it's such a fantastic organisation because they do a lot of work around um, special needs and making people aware of some things. And at the moment, they've got some, um, uh, I think it's on YouTube, actually, where they're talking about how special schools and mainstream schools can support each other. Because if you're in a mainstream school and you're presented with a child with really complex needs, your first thought is, I can't support this child, there's no way. But why doesn't that child have the right to be in mainstream school and get the full education? What is so difficult about managing their needs? And sometimes mainstream schools are just too big. And for a learner that's got a high level of anxiety, which, you know, a lot of the time with um, autism in associated difficulties, there's a lot of anxiety around that that does affect your working memory. And they find it really difficult to be in a classroom with 30, 32 children and manage. So in our school, we've got really small classes. So we've got 12 learners in a class it's set up like a secondary school so they wear full uniform they go to different lessons with different teachers you we've tried to do that to make them feel like this is the offer that you're entitled to we've got specialist teachers they all do GCSEs but you will notice that the children are different from the ones that you would typically find in mainstream school I mean I had a meeting with um a learner the other day, no, my lesson actually, because I still teach art year sevens, I absolutely loved it. And he sat there the whole time with his teddy bear. He still did the work, you know, we were doing a PowerPoint on art deco and he sat there, did his work with his teddy bear. There's no way that he would have survived in mainstream secondary school holding a teddy bear in his hand, you know. You know, you walk around the playground and there. sometimes I'm just like, I've got one learner that just shouts, Jeremy Clarkson after me because he knows it winds me up, you know. 
<laughs> and things like that you couldn't do in mainstream school. And he knows. It just really winds me up. So he does it. And it's that understanding about why people are doing certain things that sometimes people don't get. So it's such a unique environment. And I really love the fact that our learners feel confident that they can be themselves and we support them with that and we try and expose them to as much as possible you know we're always taking them out you know um, as I said I'm doing a project on art deco so I said to Mike let's go out we're going to find some art deco buildings in Medway and they were like yeah we found some let's go so we've organized a trip in a couple of weeks to go to go out because a lot of the time they don't go out you know and we get a lot of um, difficulties with online safety because they might meet people online and they think oh this person's safe and they can be quite naive about people's intentions and you have to say to them that person isn't your friend. That person doesn't want to be your friend and they're using you somehow. So it's very complex in that way because sometimes you might be talking to a learner and think they get it and they really, really don't. So, yeah, it's such a special place to be. And I call our staff, you know, superheroes because they just go above and beyond for our learners every single day. They are just such special schools. I mean, everyone in education is just amazing, but special schools the people there, they just get it and they're just amazing people to work with. So, yeah. It's it's so true as well. We've got um, two special schools in our trust, um, Keyham Lodge and Millgate. I don't know if you know them. They're, they're two, on the same site, primary and secondary, special provision for children with autism. But they're also one of the DfE behaviour hubs as well. And so their work has enriched the, the work of our mainstream schools so much. We have learned so much from the work that's going on at Keyham and Millgate and the staff there are like you say they are absolutely next level with their understanding of the 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 nuanced needs of all of the different learners how to support children and like your school they do GCSEs as well and it's it's absolutely phenomenal the provision there and the mainstream has got so much to learn from linking with you know provision in special because it's just so fabulous and so I'm listening to you just smiling yeah. because I'm absolutely <laughs> it's they are superheroes it is yeah. fantastic yeah um and it, it just makes my heart sing listening to you yeah. <laughs> it does and I'm so passionate about it because they are so they're just amazing my learners it doesn't matter what you're going through and you know obviously we've been going through COVID for the last two years and there was all this rhetoric that schools are closed schools closed. and on Twitter I was like we're not closed we're open we're a special school all our learners yeah. class is vulnerable we're in and it's just getting people to understand that you know that people have been there on the front line day in day out trying to make things as normal as possible for our kids and making sure we give them the best education uh, that we can and they just always make me laugh and just make me smile they do things and you're just like what oh gosh I can't even I can't tell you some of the things they get up to but they just make me laugh so much you know they're just so so brilliant honestly it's great when, when you hear so I mean and, and you're obviously part of a trust and and when, yeah. where schools are part of a system and I mean it's one of the things I kind of regret for my last school was was we is leaving there interrupted a, a really lovely um breaking down of barriers between our school and the special school on the same site when I got there it was like the the, the fence was as up the doors were locked 
Mm. And it was all like, don't talk to them. Literally, almost literally, I was told on my first day, oh, we don't talk to them, literally. Yeah. Like wow. fighting over territorialism, over the shared building and everything. And I was thinking, yeah. you know, why are the doors locked? Why do we? And, and there are times where you needed to, but other times where you think, well, let's, and getting, when you had the, the beautiful times where the students could integrate and yeah. you had the sort of, and that, that every so often we created these lovely moments where mm. there was like organic integration and of course there's sort of social issues and you've got to prepare children and so on but it was the ideals of trying to create a kind of a, a, a space where everyone in the community feels we're all in it together absolutely like, do, you, do you get your students chance to have contact with mainstreamers is that kind of integration possible no, we, we don't really have contact with mainstream school. I think because of the anxiety around it, and we don't have a secondary school within our trust. And we were trying to do a partnership with another mainstream um, school so that we could share good practice around that. But the local authority are kind of, they're not as innovative as, a, as we are as a trust and saying, you know, we need to work together and share good practice, which is such a shame. And one thing I've never understood is why it's not compulsory to do a part of your teaching practice in a special school. I've never got that. It doesn't make any sense to me why that isn't a compulsory part of teacher training, because it's not like you're going to go to a mainstream school and not find children there. And, you know, we always say what's good for children with SEN is good for everybody. You know, you might not have most, I, I would say a lot of children, when I was in Bexley, my job was to go around and look at children that had suspected difficulties in mainstream school and kind of put, you know, some information together for our educational psychologists so they could do a full assessment. And I was just shocked so many times when I saw a child not being included in the classroom, when you could see that they had difficulties and you could see that they had those needs. But the teacher was scared because they weren't equipped to deal with the presentation of a child. Sometimes it would be easy things, you know, like I'm very passionate about questioning in the classroom and, you know, making sure you've got the five W's up in the right order that you can use as an anchor to open up questioning, especially with speech and language. And it was just amazing the amount of mainstream teachers that didn't know those basic methods sometimes. And I just don't get why there isn't more collaboration between people because it's good for everybody, you know. I just, I don't get it. I totally agree with that. I, I, mm-hmm. I spent a term, it's one of the, I, I, re, I refer to it so often because it was such a formative thing for me when I was, I, I was a supply teacher for a year, sort of in between moving into London and trying to get jobs in London. And one of my, I did a whole term in a special school, Wood Lane Special School in Hammersmith. And I taught age five to age 16. And I, I learned so much. One of my favourite memories from there was a, a boy who, we were reading the twits, Roald Dahl. And I started reading it and with them. And he knew the next line every time. And I, and I thought it was uncanny. And I was thinking... You know how how has this happened? And it turned out that he he could barely read, but he he had it on audio, and yeah. he'd learnt the book yeah. off by heart like a song. Yeah. yeah, and he kept on he kept on telling, giving the story away because he I would read a story and he would just and then he would say the next line. It's like and it was yeah. exactly right. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other way of functioning in the world, which was quite yeah. significant. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is so interesting. Like yeah. 
you can't make assumptions about kids. You've got to get into their space and, exactly. and find and you know what you said there is really important because that is to me why assessments are so important. When I worked in alternative provision, the amount of children in that provision that couldn't read and write were it was unbelievable, you know. And they got all the way through secondary school. They'd got up to year nine, and the demands had been placed on them for GCSE content. They're entering entering secondary with a reading age of five or six. And that hasn't been remedied in primary school. And then they're expected to sit GCSE papers that they can't access. The amount of children that would just have a fight because they'd know that that would get themselves excluded or they'd play up because they know that if the teacher asked them to read or, or look at something, that would cause them anxiety. So they would just act up and, and get out of the classroom. And there aren't, there isn't enough work around secondary schools looking at the underlying difficulties around um, a child's behaviour, not just labelling them as a child that doesn't want to learn. You know, there's so much again to unpick around that. And I remember having a boy in alternative provision who just used to leave voice messages for people. You know, people would ring him or text him, and he'd leave voice messages for them because he couldn't read the text that they were sending him. And you're like, this child was in year 10 at the time. And I taught him how to read, you know, and we just had the 100 high frequency words up in the classroom. Um, I got him a series of books that was around, you know, social issues and things that he could relate to, but that was in the language um, of like a, a seven year old so that he could access that. And that really started his love of reading. And you get children like that and you just think, how has somebody managed to go through the whole education system and that hasn't been picked up? You know, how does that happen? It's uh, um, one of the um, assistant heads at our special provision, a lady named Nim Sudra. She taught in mainstream before she moved into special. And she's often said to me when I'm working with her, if I went back into mainstream, I would be a completely different teacher and I would teach in a completely different way. You know, I would never teach a mainstream class the same way from my experience in, in special. So I was just to go, kind of getting towards the end. It's just if you could kind of articulate, what would you want mainstream teachers to, to know or to be able to do? A bit like Nim when she said, I would never teach like that again. What's the way that you would like teachers to teach in mainstream? I would like them to, you know what, the most important thing to me is relationships. You know, when you've got a child in front of you, it's so hard because you've got so many demands as a teacher, but you have to build those relationships. And if you're struggling to find a, a build a relationship or find something that you've got in common, you have to talk to someone else that does get that child. One of the first things that I do Um, for all new members of staff is they have to do a visual profile. They have to do a PowerPoint all about themselves. Every learner in my school ribs me about Arsenal because it was on my visual PowerPoint. And one of my kids that has got a high level of anxiety, he was nonverbal until about two years ago. And he said to me, Miss, you really need to give up, you know, and I got really worried. I was like, do you mean give up? Are you okay? And he said, you know, I know you're optimistic and I know you try and be hopeful, but you need to give up. And I was like, give up what? What? He goes, supporting Arsenal and it's not good for you. <laughs> well, you know, I, like... I, could probably, I could probably agree with that, you know. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, 
<laughs> it's so it's so i feel like it's been a wonderful thing it's so lovely to meet you frankie and um so God, your, the passion just just comes through the screen I mean, it's brilliant um, and i really know that people are listening to this on the podcast who are going to want to know more about you and follow what you're doing so i just want to say a massive thank you it's been a real real honor to, to oh, thank you. what a joy what an absolute treat <laughs> yeah. today so thank, thank you, you so thank much you. i really appreciate yeah. that all lifted up and inspired it's like yeah yeah <laughs> And I didn't have to mention any of these books that I've put no, no, no. here either, which is great. <laughs> so look, we have to finish there, but it's been a real joy. Thank you so much to, to Francis Akinde, to Frankie coming on our, on, on the, the podcast. It's real great, really great to talk to you. So this has been Thank you. Mind, Mind the Gap, <laughs> Making Education Work Across the Globe with me, Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner. Thank you so much. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.